welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed therapist with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and this month I am going to be a teetotaler. You are? Mm-hmm. I actually do know what that means, but I'm going to have you explain it because I feel like you do it better. Well, it just means someone who's not drinking alcohol or right. doesn't drink alcohol. And I am doing, um, I, I don't want to call it a dry January. It just kind of coincides with January. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I work with a therapist, as mm-hmm. you know, and I have a lot of anxiety. And one of the things that um, both I think helps but hinders anxiety is when I drink. So mm-hmm. I drink to chill. Um, but then the next day I'm anxious from drinking the night before. Um, so I'm going to give it a break and see how it goes. And it just happens to coincide with January. So. All right. Good for you. Yeah. I'm like, what's the 16th? I, New Year's Eve, I had just a couple drinks and that was it. So that's like basically the last time I've had anything to drink. Good for you. I've got to tell you, it's kind of boring. (laughs) I mean, I guess I just need to find like other things to do. Right, exactly. I'm not like a total abstainer, but I don't drink very often. So if you're ever bored and don't want to drink, we can hang out. You and my mom are like mm-hmm. the two people I can count on to, you know, want to go just get. Well, and my friend Tasha, too, if she listens to this sometimes. But uh, most of my friends, it's kind of part of their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Not like let's go party, but like, you know, everything involves maybe a glass of wine or like a cocktail Right. And we can go get dinner and just drink like iced tea. That's what I've been drinking, a lot of iced tea. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. And bubble water, like the bubble water. Yeah. So anyhow, welcome to Addicted to Murder, and we are finishing up with Anthony so well today. We are. Um, but I do have a question first, Courtney. Yes, it is question time. It is question time. Um I'm going to give you just a little background on this one. I mean, just because it happened last night. I had a dream last night that somebody was cleaning my kitchen floor with, like, bleach spray. Hmm. And then Chris told me he dreamt that he was cleaning a kitchen floor with bleach spray last night. Oh. Isn't that weird? That is kind of weird. (laughs) Yeah. Very weird. So, anyways, my dream or my question for you is do you – remember your dreams and if so are they color or black and white I do remember my dreams a lot of the time not all the time um but they are definitely in color so I have to double check really quick but I wasn't aware of this but apparently a lot of people dream in black and white and um I think that's like I had no idea you know did you know that I I knew that some people did it, and I didn't necessarily realize that if it was, like, a large group or a large amount of people. So this is from the New York Times. 12% of people dream entirely in black and white. So, I mean, that's not a huge amount, but that's pretty... a good chunk. Yeah. And, um, I mean, if we dream, like, partially, like, how we perceive reality... Um, maybe those people that dream in black and white watch a lot of black and white TV or are colorblind or I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So anyhow. Okay. Well, I learned something. Yeah. Good times. Good times. Um, do you want to recap for us a little bit before we finish up, um, Anthony so well today? Yes, I can do that. So over the last two episodes, we have learned about Anthony Sowell, 
and that he had a really horrific childhood that was just full of all the different types of abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, He did a small stint in the military, ended up um, becoming an alcoholic shortly thereafter, and then went to prison for, what, 15 years? 15 years. For... Because he couldn't figure out how to say the right things to get out early. Right. Um, so the charge was attempted rape, mm-hmm. but really it, it was, was the, the rape and assault. Brutal. Mm-hmm. And then he got out of prison, went back to drinking, started smoking some crack, and started murdering some other people. Yeah. And his girlfriend um, was who introduced him to crack. Well, I mean, the crack was there. The neighborhood they lived in. Um, was a very like crack heavy neighborhood. It was kind of a you know impoverished neighborhood, but he and Lori um, started to do crack together. <clears throat> so Anthony's next victim was Tonya, Tonya, probably Tonya Carmichael. Uh, she was a 49 year old crack addict when she met so well. At one time in her life, she did have her shit together. She owned a house. She had a good job. She was a single mom, but managed to bring up her three children. And then she developed a cracked addiction, and she lost her job, her kids, and her house. She also had an array of criminal charges in her past. On November 10th, 2008, Tonya got $20 from her mom to buy, you know, quote, antifreeze, and left the house and was never seen again. Two days later, her mother went to file a missing persons report, and the desk clerk said, quote, she'll, up after she f- she'll show up after she finishes smoking crack. Nothing was ever done further by the police. When someone told her they thought they saw Tanya over on Imperial Street, they went to that precinct to file a missing persons report. Allegedly, they were told that because Tanya wasn't a resident of the city of Cleveland, they would not take the report. When her mother went back to the precinct because she found her daughter's abandoned truck in their area, they again refused, but told her to go to the Wardensville Heights Police Department. And then finally, someone did file a report and then, you know, distributed flyers. Courtney, now I realize that, you know, the women gone missing are drug users with priors. However, the people reported them missing know them. They know that their patterns are, they, they sometimes disappear, you know, because of their habits. And they also know when they don't follow that pattern. And as a police officer, I think that I would take the missing person report more seriously because of how often they are in the system. I don't know. I mean, I get the whole lack of resources thing, but gut instincts by family or friends should count for something. Ultimately, they are civil servants and they have a responsibility to do something, even if it leads them to just, you know, sleeping it off is what they were doing. What do you think? I agree that family members' instincts and voices should carry more weight than they do, right? Because they are the ones that intimately know these people. Um, you know, and I say in, in a perfect world, law enforcement would have all the resources and manpower needed to track down every single lead for every missing person. Um, and unfortunately, we don't live in a, a perfect world. Um, so there's not enough resources. Um, but also in this perfect world, you know, the value of a person's life and the time dedicated to trying to find them also wouldn't be judged on their race, gender, or history. Yeah, or occupation, or if they were a sex worker. Right, exactly. Gladys Wade was a 42-year-old crack addict who just was released from jail on December 8th, 2008. She started using when she was 24, and she had been, you know, through several arrests, had been evicted, and had been made homeless. She was sued and was even a violent offender. Well, she was charged with the assault um, at one time, unsure of that conviction, 
sorry, that that was kind of a badly worded sentence. But anyhow, <laughs> Gladys was waiting at the bus stop that day with a bag of beer when Anthony happened upon her. He invited her over to drink the beer with him, but she declined and decided to walk away. I think she got like a creepy feeling. Anthony followed. Then he was on her, using a chokehold to knock her out, in public, on a street. Um, he then pulled her into his house on Imperial. When she woke in the house, she started to scream. And this brought Anthony into the room, where he said, quote, Bitch, take your clothes off. Gladys was not a small woman, and she fought back. She grabbed his balls, and she twisted them. Quote, I did that, and I tried to take his arm off. I was fighting back. He was fighting me. I ran to the stairs, and he's running after me. Gladys continued to scream, to which Sowell said, quote, Bitch, you can scream all you want. You're fixing to die. They then fell down the stairs together, all the while he was still choking her. When they landed on the second floor landing, Gladys' hand had went through a window and really cut up her, um, she was bleeding pretty bad. And then they fell down the other flight of stairs, and Gladys was still squeezing his testicles the whole time. She was fighting him off as best as she could. She was trying to, you know, scratch his eyes out, like gouging his eyes, like we were taught in our, you know, class mm -hmm. that we took. And his head started to bleed as he knocked it on something in the scuffle. At that, she was able to free herself and run from the house. You know, panicked, of course, she ran across the street into a pizza place and asked to use the phone and for help. She was bleeding everywhere, and they told her to go outside because of that, and no one was helping her. The payphone outside did not work. Anthony walked into the store and told the proprietors that, quote, the bitch stole my watch and my money. Apparently, this prompted everyone in the store to laugh because, you know, the situation is just so hilarious. Um, so she left the store and ran down the street to a house that her mother took her to before and called her boyfriend. Now, her boyfriend couldn't help, though, because he was a fugitive and he didn't want to get involved. So he was a little bit torn about what to do. So she left that house and she began to go to the bus stop she originally started from. Quote, I still didn't know if he was coming after me. I just kept running and found some police. So she did finally find a patrol car who saw, you know, how messed up she was and they called an ambulance. She described what happened and where he could, um, where the police could go to find Tone because that's what she knew him as, Tone. Um, and she knew him since, uh, sorry, um, as she knew him since that was what they called him at the pizza place. Okay. So, quote, if you go over there now, he should be there. I kicked his butt. They went to the house and arrested Anthony, who was indeed <laughs> kind of all beaten up. So the both of them were questioned. They were both treated for injuries, but it came down to he said, she said. And since he didn't get to actually the point where he raped her, there wasn't that evidence. So they ruled that there wasn't enough evidence and they let him go. Courtney, um, let's talk about how brazen Anthony has become abducting someone in the street in front of his house where anyone could have walked by. And also how amazing was Gladys fighting him off like that. I only hope that if I'm ever in that situation, I can remember to do what she did. Um, as for the charges being dropped, I mean, I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm annoyed and frustrated, but yeah, at this point we've seen this over and over and over again. Yes, lots of eye rolling happening over here right now. Um, but really, first of all, I hope that you're never in a position like Gladys was where you have to use your self-defense training. Um, but as for Gladys, you know, she was definitely a fighter and she deserved better justice than she got. 
And and as for Anthony, you know, I think that what we're seeing here is a form of that infallibility complex that comes with psychopathy, where they just have this belief that like bad things won't happen to them or they won't ever get consequences for their actions, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, likely spurred or was spurred on even more by the fact that, well, he had been getting away with these crimes so far, like multiple murders here by this point. Um you know, and so his not being held responsible for the assault on Gladys probably likely only increased this belief that he wasn't going to face consequences. I When I was reading about this, and again, the book we're using is Nobody's Women by Steve Miller, um, where she ran into that pizza place asking for help. And not only did they tell her to leave because she's dripping blood on the floor, when he came in and like said that she, he, she was stealing from him, everyone just laughed at her. Like, what the fuck? What kind of people see a woman coming in bleeding Mm -hmm. and turn them away when they're asking for help? Like, I just don't get it. Well, so after this, Anthony says that Lori, his girlfriend, left him for good. And this really screwed him up. He was going into an even darker place. And he claims he would go into dreamlike states all the time. He'd black out, not remember things. Courtney, real quick, can you tell us a little bit about dissociation? And um, which to me kind of sounds like Anthony was doing if he's being truthful. Yes. So dissociation is a mental state where the mind essentially disconnects from reality as a way of trying to protect a person from experiencing intense emotional or physical pain. Um, It's most often experienced in response to a traumatic event and can continue to happen um, well after that trauma has ended in response to like triggers or reminders. So on the more minor end of the dissociation spectrum, um, there are things like flashbacks, um, or it can feel and look like the world around you isn't real, which is called derealization, um, or like you are sort of outside of yourself watching what's happening, so-called depersonalization. And then on kind of the more severe end of the spectrum, of course, is dissociative identity disorder, um, where a person's psyche fractures into different distinct identities or personalities that each play a role in protecting kind of the main person from severe trauma. So these different identities are often not aware of each other, or at the very least, the main kind of personality or the host, as it's called, is not aware of them, which results in in blackouts or lost time that cannot be explained by the host person um, when another personality might be um, the one in charge, so to speak. Um, And, you know, the... The level of physical and sexual abuse that Anthony experienced as a child, it would be reasonable to assume that he likely did experience some sort of dissociative episodes in some form. Two random things that popped in my head. The first, do you think people who claim alien abduction really might have some sort of DID going on where they lose time and it happens often? That is possible. I don't know why that just came to my head. Especially if they're like have scars or mm-hmm. injuries and stuff that they can't explain. Sometimes probes. that does happen. I mean... The anal pot- probes. Potentially. Okay. And then second, I, I suffer from dissociation, um, not as much as I used to because I've been working on it. But for me, what it felt like was I would be like, am I dreaming? And like I couldn't tell 
totally if I was um, awake or not. I don't know how to explain mm-hmm. that. Where do you think I was on this scale? Yeah. So that would fall under that like derealization. Okay. Um, yeah. Kind of definition. Mm-hmm. You're not sure if the world around you is real or not. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Anthony claims that in 2009, he could no longer ignore the voices in his head. So now he's, you know, succumbing to these so-called voices. He was never diagnosed with schizophrenia as far as I can tell. I mean, there might be something out there um, that I didn't see, but what my research showed me was that there was not that diagnosis. But perhaps there's something going on in his mind that was negative. What do you think? Yeah. So just, you know, a note on auditory hallucinations. You know, most people think strictly of things like schizophrenia, but they can also be present in cases of PTSD as well as severe depression or mania. Okay. And so we know that Anthony has felt abandoned or betrayed by women throughout his life. So perhaps Lori was really, you know, the love of his life and she left him. And maybe that's why all of this stuff is starting to, it's triggered him. It's possible. Yeah, he could have gone into like a really deep depression, which on top of, you know, the PTSD that he probably already had mm-hmm. um, and some of those personality traits kind of right could have been like a last straw sort of thing. Kim Smith was last seen by her father on January 7th, 2009. She was a 44-year-old drug addict who acted as a caregiver to her father. She had multiple crack-related drug charges and other for minors, uh, other charges for minor offenses. Her father had tried to take her to a rehab, but it didn't work. When she didn't come home for two days, Kim's father put up flyers and offered a $500 reward for any information on where she might be. He didn't go to the police. He just figured they wouldn't help. So, you know, what's the point? And he probably was not wrong. Melda Hunter knew Anthony pretty well, um, as far as you can in that kind of lifestyle. She had definitely partied with him many times, at his house even. She was 47, year old, 47 years old when she had her fateful night with Sowell. She had been in and out of the lifestyle many times and actually had a nice home and a life partner in a nearby neighborhood. But she was last seen on April 18, 2009. Witnesses say they saw her at Anthony's house, but they just couldn't be sure exactly when. At that time, despite the smell, it was a place to party, so all sorts of people were in and out of that house all the time. She was not reported missing to the police, but her family did their own search, put up flyers, and canvassed the neighborhood. They also thought it pointless to go to the police for their help, you know, because they just never seemed to care. Tanya Doss dated Anthony before Lori, and she always wanted him back. She won, or she ran into him in April of 2009, and they had a pleasant kind of like, how are you type of interaction. They planned to meet up sometime and catch up, you know, hang out. And she went over to his place a couple nights later to drink and smoke crack. And they were having a good time when Anthony sprung up on her. He grabbed her by the throat and squeezed. Tanya was only 81 pounds, so no match physically for Anthony. And he said, uh, quote, bitch, you could be the next crackhead bitch dead in the street and nobody would give a fuck about you he then said quote if you want to live knock three times on the floor which tanya did and he let her go he then made her take off her clothes and get into the bed and he must have gone to sleep she cried herself to sleep and the next morning anthony acted as if nothing had happened he even offered her a beer she made up a story about a sick sick baby saying she had to go he walked her out of the house and said you know let me know how that baby's doing give me a call and uh she left. Courtney, what do you think happened? Are we seeing another personality maybe, or do you think he knew what he was doing the whole time, like Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing? So 
It is very, very difficult to diagnose DID, and it's very rare. Um, so I am going to assume that he did not have multiple identities. Um, but I do believe that Anthony's mental state was clearly deteriorating at this point, um, and his ability to control his impulses was getting much worse. So, you know, these things were also likely impacted by, you know, that compulsion to kill that we've seen, Mm -hmm. you know, show up in these last couple of years. Um, And then his substance abuse as well would um, tie into, you know, worse impulse control and more volatility and all of that. Well, and I know for me, I have impulsive problems. Uh, Again, something I'm working on. And if I can... You know, if I had that impulse comes up and I if, if I can put it off long enough, it goes away. So I'm wondering if like, you know, when he was terrorizing her the night before, that was when that drive was happening. And then he fell asleep and he woke up and that impulse was gone. And that's why he's like, I'll see you. Like, it just wasn't there anymore. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I think that's exactly what what may have been happening. Very confusing. <laughs> For everyone involved, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. Um, Tanya had a friend named Nancy Cobbs and it sounds like Nancy was the only one she told about what happened with Anthony. She didn't go to the police. Well, Nancy apparently liked Anthony and thought maybe he was just really high that night and he freaked out on Tanya. I don't know. Nancy was 43 years old and trying again to get her life together. She had been in prison for two years for drug trafficking charge and lost her children. When she got out, she continued to use drugs and continued to get caught. And she met Tony in 2008. They hung out sometimes. He was, you know, a good guy and all. Yeah, that's what she thought. And she was last seen April 24th, 2009. The family attempted to file a report with the police department, but were told to go to another station to do so. The familiar runaround. They just decided to put up their own flyers, and they did talk to a news station. A side note, um, all of these missing persons posters were putting up and then mysteriously being torn down. Wonder who was doing this? Mm, suspicious <laughs> Courtney Anthony's last few victims were people he knew people who considered him a friend and even a formal girlfriend was in the mix anything you want to say about that so between his substance use um, his increased impulsivity and agitation you know and that belief that you know he will continue to get away with his crimes I think that these victims were sort of opportunistic and easy targets you know, because he knew them, it was easy to lure them into his house and get them high so that they would be more vulnerable without having to physically abduct or coerce them. They came willingly. So at this point, he doesn't care about anything but getting what he wants. So he's definitely crossed that line into antisocial, right? I mean, these are people that I don't know if he considered them friends, but he knew them. I would definitely say that there is um, a good level of psychopathy showing up here. In June 2009, Talisha Fortson was last seen by her adopted mother when she dropped off some groceries and straightened up, you know, the already tidy residence. Uh, Talisha was adopted at age nine after spending several years in the foster system because her birth mom was a drug drug addict and her father was an alcoholic, and they both were deemed unfit parents. Talisha started to smoke pot at age 14 and was using cocaine by age 20. She constantly ran away in her youth, oftentimes to a former foster parent a few miles away. At age 17, she was sent to the juvenile facility nearby and was kicked out when she completed her high school education. She then was on the streets doing drugs and getting in trouble with the law. 
She had been assessed at a mental health agency due to her suicide attempts, and she had her first child taken away from her because she tested positive for cocaine while she was pregnant. She did try treatment programs three times, in fact, and they all failed. She tried to clean up her life a couple times, but she just kept ending up back on the streets. Courtney, I think that many times when the treatment facilities and programs fail, it is in part because the person seeking treatment is doing so for the wrong reasons. To become clean, the person in question needs to be doing it for themselves, not because the courts ordered it, not to appease a family member, but because they want to be clean. It's the only way it can work. Don't you agree? I'd say it's generally true that like lasting change of any kind doesn't seem to stick unless a person really wants to make that change. Um, and the, it's true about addictions as well. You know, some people do, you know, find initially external motivation from the outside source, like doing it for their kids or avoiding jail time. Um, and then they can develop more internal motivation once kind of the drugs are out of their system long enough. Um, but really, the whole business of drug rehab is counting on the fact that people will cycle in and out multiple times, and there just are not enough sort of like aftercare supports. Mm-hmm. You know, you might have someone in treatment long enough to detox and get clean, but if they've only got 30 days sober and you send them out and they don't have a home to live in, they don't have a job, they don't have a safe place to be, it's setting them up to fail. Well, yeah, a lot of times they're going to go right back to where they were because that's what they have available to them. Exactly. You can't, or it would be very hard to be someone trying to get off of a substance and be around that substance all the time. Absolutely. Yes. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot people who can get clean. Like I super admire them because it's like a whole lifestyle change. It's not just, I'm going to not do this drug. It's, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It's, I have to make, not only behavior modifications, but I have to kind of like make a whole new life involving new people and new surroundings and new hobbies. And it's, it's a huge thing. And I get why there is so much relapse because that's a really hard thing to do. Right. Especially if, you know, like I said, there's no, nowhere to go at once they're clean. Right. Yeah. And a lot of these people, especially ones we're talking about are low income. Right. can't just move to Colorado or wherever. Or sober living facilities Mm -hmm. that, you know, don't work with insurance or they only give you another 15 days Mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. (sighs) This this case brings up so many, um, like, raw subjects for me, like, personally. Not because I can put myself in the – because it just – so many of these victims are – like victims in more than one way. And it's just really frustrating and sad. Absolutely. Yeah. Janice Webb was a longtime drug user when she went missing at age 48. Like the others, she had been in trouble with the law because of her drug addiction. She was married at one time to a man whose own family got the couple addicted to crack. She was last heard from by her sister on June 3rd, 2009. A missing report, excuse me, a missing persons report was filed, but nothing was really done about it by the authorities. Diane Turner did not show up for her probation hearing, and a warrant was issued on July 2nd, 2009. She was a sex worker with a long rap sheet. By the time she was 24, excuse me, all three of her children had been taken away from her due to her drug use. Another three would be born and taken away due to her drug and criminal activity. Diane had serious mental health problems and epilepsy. No one filed a missing, excuse me, no one filed a missing persons report for Diane. 
On September 22, 2009, Latundra Billups was a 36-year-old, and she was addicted to crack. She had even obtained crack on occasion from Anthony. Quote, my addiction had taken off. I was over to the house on Imperial a lot, and that's why we did drugs. I used to live over there. She had even been there with Diane a few weeks prior and Nancy Cobb before that. So she had been there with two people that have already been attacked or killed by Anthony. That day, she and Anthony were hanging out, drinking and smoking. It was her idea to go up to the third floor that day. The house was pretty dirty at this time. In fact, when she asked to use the restroom, he gave her a bucket because of how bad the bathrooms were. I'm not sure what prompted LaTundra to say this to Anthony, but she said, quote, Some girls around have been talking about you, Tone. They say you are a rapist or assaulted them. Anthony promptly knocked her out. When she awoke, he told her to get undressed, to which she complied. He then used an extension cord to strangle her until she passed out. She awoke to Anthony looking at her, and he apologized for tearing her sweater. He then said, quote, I want to kill you, and I want to kill myself. I know I'm going to jail. Latundra assured Anthony she wasn't going to say anything. She wouldn't send him to jail. They hung out a while longer. He gave her a new sweater to replace the one he had ripped, probably from one of the women he killed. Or maybe it was Lori's clothes. I don't know. She played it cool, very nonchalant, took the sweater, and calmly walked out of the house. When she got to a safe place, she broke down in tears. Latundra did go to the ER and reported that she had been raped and assaulted. Quote, and they already knew of him, of Anthony so well. I told them I knew him just his tone, but they knew his address. They said they had five other women that had come in for him. Courtney, five women filing reports against him. He is a registered sex offender, and still he is out? I mean, that's an understatement of the century right there. You know, it's it's pure negligence is what it is. You know, it's police and district attorneys not believing there's enough evidence. It's assholes thinking that, you know, these women somehow deserved or were asking for it based on their status as addicts or as sex workers. It's just, it's horrible. And there's no excuse for it. I mean, if we're going to talk numbers, five against one, that should have been enough right there, but... And these are just the ones that lived to report it. Or, you know, there were probably several others that didn't report it. Oh, I'm sure. Because, you know, how many times does a victim have something like this happen to them and they don't they don't report it because of whatever's going on in their head mentally? Right. Or because they think that the police won't believe them, right. especially, you know, women in, in this type of community who mm-hmm. are, you no, know. They don't believe them. Yeah. October 20th, 2009, Sean Morris was doing her thing on the street. She was a tough and streetwise woman, but she did have a history of drug abuse. She was at a bus stop when she saw Anthony, and she knew that he usually had drugs on him. She approached him, and they went to his house. They hung out for a few hours, drinking and smoking crack. And Sean actually left the house unscathed. But when she got home, she realized she had left her ID at Anthony's, and so she went back to get it. When she walked up to the third floor, Anthony grabbed her and choked her from behind. Quote, if you try to scream or run, I'll kill you. Do what I tell you, or I'll kill you. Whatever I say to whatever I say to you, you better say yes, sir. He told her to undress and lie on her stomach on the bed. He then violently raped her. She started to scream then. She jumped up from the bed and ran to a window that was open. And she was hanging by the ledge from the third floor. And she was naked. Okay, so Courtney, so she's hanging out of the window by the third floor by her fingers, naked, 
And she's just praying that if she could drop down and not break too many bones, she could get away. So Anthony sees this happening and he goes over to the ledge and he grabs her arms and tries to pull her up, but she's too heavy. So instead he takes her arms and he throws her down as hard as he can, probably trying to kill her, I'm assuming. I'm sure. So Sean was on the ground naked with two broken hands, eight broken ribs, and a fractured skull. She was alive, however, and Anthony saw that, and he wasted no time, and he ran outside, and he's naked himself, and he's trying to get her back into the house to finish the job. And so where this happened was the alley between Ray's sausages and his house. So there's um, a video of this. It doesn't have volume, but you can see it if you look at some of the documentaries. Um, So anyhow, a witness saw Sean, you know, outside on the ground naked and ran to the local proprietor uh, near there at store and told them what they saw. And her name was Fawcett Bess. And she came out of her business and saw the scene. And Anthony tried to talk himself out of it, but Bess would not let him take Sean away. So Anthony's like, no, this is my wife, blah, blah, blah. We were just having kinky sex and she fell out. I've got to get her back in the house. And these witnesses were like, hell no. <laughs> they Good called for them. Yeah. <laughs> they did not buy that story so an ambulance was called you know police were summoned um and like i said the the story was that they she was his wife having consensual sex and they believed him because they allowed him in the ambulance with her to the hospital so when questioned at the hospital probably her mental state maybe because anthony was there i don't know she lied and made up a story about her dropping her keys um and that's why she fell out the window so it turns out she was married and, you know, that also could have been, you know, why she thought she might get in trouble because she was with a man naked, even though it was because he forced to rape on her. But regardless, um, the police couldn't or didn't do anything and Anthony was free again. Courtney? I do just don't even have words. It's horrible. It's one of the craziest stories, uh, survival stories we've seen. Right. I mean, two broken hands, eight broken ribs, and a head fracture. Mm -hmm. Like. Yeah. I mean, thrown, basically thrown from a third floor naked after being violently raped, violently raped for hours. All right. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. Well, apparently all of these accusations against Anthony had not gone completely unnoticed. So on October 28, 2009, a search warrant was being worked on. There were 13 members of a SWAT team assigned to it, in fact. And the reason was that Anthony Sewell may be a violent offender and, you know, he would fight back. So they're really starting to take this seriously, finally. Um, They broke into the house in search of Anthony to arrest him, but he wasn't home. So they began searching the home for signs of, you know, life. And they saw that he had recently been there. There was like a receipt or something. And they came upon a door that was locked. They could smell the smell, the smell of the supposed sausage factory. They broke down the door and saw the bodies of Talisha Fortson and Diane Turner. In the basement, they found evidence of freshly dug graves that would turn out to be where Janice Webb was buried. And a new warrant was requested. This one was for murder and not rape. So Anthony was on the lam and Ebola was put out. The community members were encouraged to help the police find him, and a $2,000 reward was offered. Anthony was at his sister's house when this was occurring, and a neighbor of his 
found him there and told him what was going on at his residence. The police showed up to the sister's house minutes after Sowell had left on foot. The reward was up to 12000 at this point, and while the search for Anthony was on, the crime scene was being investigated. The head of LaShonda Long was found in a bucket in the basement, but her body was never recovered. The backyard was being dug up as cadaver dogs were picking up scents all over. Five women were found in one day in the backyard. Crystal Dozier, Tanya Carmichael, Imelda Hunter, Michelle Mason, and Kim Smith were found back there. Tashana Culver's body was in a crawl space in the house. Eleven bodies in all were found in and around the house on Imperial Avenue. Anthony, meanwhile, was holed up in an abandoned house, but was eventually found while walking on the street Halloween of 2009 by Joe Veal, who recognized him from the news. And he told the police where he saw what he thought was their suspect, and they were able to apprehend him. So, of course, Anthony claimed not to be Anthony, but they saw through the lie, and they brought him into custody. So they questioned him for a while. Um, Anthony was coming down off drugs, so he was pretty agitated throughout the interview. He continued to lie and say it was not the man they were looking for. He didn't kill anyone. Anthony began to claim that his head told him what to do. His head, I mean like voices in his head. The cop asked, quote, what was your head telling you to do, Tony? Anthony replied, quote, it's like I was supposed to rape those girls and shit. And, quote, people don't give a fuck about nothing, nobody. Even when you help them, I was just, I just, I don't know what happened, but I know it had something to do with my last girlfriend. Anthony talked a lot about Lori and that something in him changed when she left him for good. Quote, that's when I started hearing things. I mean, it was just, I just had a breakdown or something. He claimed that voices told him what he needed to do. He then shifted topics and said that his mother never told him she loved him and that has hurt him deeply his whole life. He claimed to not remember what happened to the girls, said there were two of him. He said he would go into a constant dreamlike state and when he came out of them, everything would be normal and he didn't know what he did while in those states. What do you think, Courtney? Well, this argument sounds familiar. I believe our friend Ted tried to claim that there were two parts of him that he would blackout during at least some of his murders. Gary Ridgway, too. Yep, it's a, a common theme. Um, and now, you know, given his history and what we've talked about with dissociation, maybe Anthony really did experience these episodes and was having command hallucinations mm-hmm. brought on by, you know, drugs and depression and trauma. But even if these things were true, he would still have noticed dead bodies in his home and would probably have questions about how they got there and how he got various injuries that he received while, you know, these women were fighting back. And I think that was pointed out in the book, like, well, when you came to, you had a dead body there. Right. (laughs) And you tried to cover it up somewhat. I mean, not very well, but. Exactly. Well, Anthony would go on to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. So Cornelius is kind of crazy, but eventually eight of the 11 victims' families would come together and plead with the court and judge and DA or whoever it is to accept a guilty plea from Anthony in return for not having to endure a trial. So they were not seeking the death penalty. And, you know, a lot of times if you take a plea, you, you avoid the death penalty, right? Right. So that's what they wanted to do. They just, they were like, if he's down with it, we'll have him plead guilty to murder, avoid the trial, and we won't seek the death penalty. So here's an excerpt, excerpt from the letter. Quote, We do not want to endure a trial. 
We do not want to be witnesses to a media spectacle where our loved ones' lives and the details of the horrendous criminal acts inflicted upon them are spotlighted. The death penalty for Anthony Sowell is not necessary or even desirable. In comparison to the grief, we families will continue to suffer under the realities and certainties of the criminal justice system. We feel that our voices have not been heard as a victim's families. A prolonged trial and reenactment of Sowell's documented actions will create great distress on the families of the victims. So Anthony's lawyers agreed with this and asked for Anthony to plead guilty and to waive the appeals. And Anthony agreed too. But all of this was denied. So even though most of the victims, I granted there were four of the families that wanted him to fry, um, even though most of the victims wanted to forgo a trial and put Anthony away, you know, forever and save the taxpayers money, you know, all that kind of stuff. And what if there was a mistrial? God forbid, right? Um, They were turned down. So no wonder they didn't trust the system. Um, what do you think, Courtney? I wonder if it was like the prosecution or a judge that denied the request. Um, like I wasn't aware that a guilty plea could be denied if it was agreed on by both prosecution and defense. Like unless a person was deemed incompetent to stand trial, which Anthony wasn't. Um, I mean, it certainly would have been way easier on everyone to not have a trial But I don't know, maybe the district attorney's office really wanted to, like, go after him and go after the death penalty. And it was maybe a political thing for them. Honestly, I don't quite remember all the details. Um, Maybe it was the district attorney's office didn't offer the plea. Mm -hmm. But in this situation, I felt like these families had been ignored enough by the police. And now they're like, okay, finally you caught him. Let's just put this all to bed and be done with it and they still weren't given that option right and we're forced to go through with the trial yeah and um I didn't put a whole lot in here about the trial but you know they had to go through everything and I think they showed the photos of the house I mean it was just completely I gave very minimal detail on how he killed these people and what happened to them so it was probably very horrific Anyways, the trial went on as planned, and there was lots of evidence shown, including photos and videos, like I just said. Um, Courtney and I saw some of these photos, and what I thought I was looking at was photos of victims on a carpet, maybe covered by mouse droppings. But what I was really looking at was dead flies. Apparently, there were so many dead flies in parts of the house that you couldn't see the floor beneath it. It was just a horrific crime scene that obviously smelled so bad that the whole neighborhood smelled it. Poor Ray sausages. I know. So they had witnesses, including a woman named Vanessa Gay, who came forward after she recognized Anthony on the news and showed her close encounter with Anthony um, and how she saw a body in one of the rooms before she got the hell out of the house. She had been afraid to come forward prior to his his arrest. And after three days of jury deliberation, he was found guilty on 84 out of 85 counts of criminal activity. Um, one was dropped. I can't remember what it was. He was sentenced to death on August 10th, 2011. He was sent to Ohio State Penitentiary and lived in a single cell on death row, but he never made it beyond that. Um, he passed away from unknown medical issues on February 28th, 2021. So just a little under a year ago, he was 61 years old and I'm assuming that it had something to do with his heart. Final thoughts, Courtney? I'd say, you know, Anthony Sowell is was a very disturbed and ill human being. You know, my gut feeling about him is that kind of his 
brand of sociopathy was driven more by his environment and the horrible traumas he experienced as a child as opposed to a strict just sort of like was born this way mm-hmm. kind of situation. Um, and, you know, maybe, just maybe if he'd had access to mental health treatment um, and or had been removed from the care of his mother as a child, all of these needless deaths could have been avoided. Mm-hmm. Um, and the I, I sent Courtney this article and it says it's from uh, what is this from Cleveland.com. Um, families of six Anthony Sowell victims reach $1 million settlement with Cleveland over detectives botched investigation. So they didn't get off scot-free. I mean, I don't feel like a million dollars was enough (laughs) based on Mm -hmm. what we've learned, but, um, it was the family of Nancy Cobbs, Talisha Forson, Imelda Hunter, LaShonda Long, Diane Turner, and they will, um, they will split it. So there's that. And then also, so they they did demolish Anthony's house eventually. Um, it was like condemned and falling apart, but I believe they like you know put some sort of memorial there and they had like a release balloons and stuff like that to commemorate all of the victims that you know were murdered there. Yeah, and spent their last terrible moments of life in a nasty, smelly dwelling with a horrifying piece of shit. Um, so yeah, that was the story of Anthony Sowell and really sad all around. It is just really sad all around. I mean, I know you said that you wanted to, you felt bad for the child, which we always do, but Mm -hmm. like, you know, he was pulling at the Harvey Kerrigan heartstrings on you a little bit. Do you still feel that way? Or are you feeling like maybe, uh, this might've happened to him, you know, I don't know. You kind of just said something a little bit to that, but do you still feel the same way? I mean, don't get me wrong, like, his crimes are terrible, and, you know, not everyone who experiences trauma has the capacity for this kind of, like, violence, Mm -hmm. Um, and so I don't think that in any way what he went through excuses what he did or minimizes it, Um, but yeah, I think a part of me does wonder if, if in this case, you know, it could have been all prevented. Well, and he's not a criminal mastermind. No, this, he's not. This could have so been stopped. So, I mean, this is a clusterfuck of victim typing and mm-hmm. not believing the victim or not caring about the victim, negligence in the police force, and him just dumb luck. Right, yeah. <laughs> because he, I mean, shit, the whole neighborhood smelled dead bodies for yeah. years. Other people lived in that house with him right, at times. Right. So, I mean, fi- he had mm-hmm. five survivors at least that we know of, you know, yeah. that all told. Ugh, anyhow. Okay. Well, done with that. Yes. Um, Courtney's picking our next case. Want to tell us a little bit about it or give us a clue? Yeah. So our clue for the next one, um, I'd say, this might give it away a little bit to people who are in the know, but our next killer was taken down by a nine-year-old girl. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Good for her. I know, right? All right. Well, well um, I've also got to do some social media shit. on here. That's true. Yeah. Um, so it's yours. It's my turn. Yeah. So if you want to 
give us your guesses about our next murderer. Or you want to ask us questions, give us some love, um, you know, reach out to us on our social media, like, review, subscribe, tell your friends, all of the above. And you can get a hold of us by email at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. You can get a hold of us on our Instagram at addictedtompodcast. Um, or you can find us on our Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at Addicted to Murder Podcast. Thank you. And Courtney, what do we do when we encounter a person who smells like dead bodies and tries to get us to party with them? Go nuts, go home, and go to therapy. And maybe take a shower. Lots of showers. (laughs) All right, everyone. See you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.